Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, welcome to an introduction to medical ethics for clinicians. My name is Dr. Scott Robert. I'm an attending physician in hospital medicine at the Durham VA Medical Center in North Carolina, as well as an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. The purpose of this podcast is to describe some of the basic elements of ethical decision-making. While caring for their patients, clinicians will occasionally encounter situations or dilemmas where they feel that the best or quote-unquote correct course of action is not easy to determine. First of all, when this happens, it is very important for clinicians to know that they have already often been thinking in terms of ethical decision-making all along and that they have routinely been incorporating this into their practice without even realizing it. Medical ethics is not some secretive or elusive practice only known to a tiny group of experts. Instead, medical ethics is for anyone who cares for patients. To define the concept formally, medical ethics involves examining a specific problem, usually a clinical case, and using values, facts, and logic to decide what the best course of action should be. Before we get into specifics, let's start with a clinical vignette. Let's suppose there's a 72-year-old male currently receiving care in the intensive care unit. Prior to this hospitalization, he was known to have dementia, and he is now critically ill with small bowel ischemia. Though he's required some sedation for sundowning, he is still able to talk without difficulty. The surgeons evaluated the patient's case, and they recommend that they take the patient immediately to the operating room for laparotomy and likely bowel resection. They have spoken to the patient, and he has signed a consent form, but the ICU staff is concerned if this is what the patient actually wants. The ICU staff has asked you to help. Finally, it is known that the patient is a widower, but his mother is still alive, and that the patient has three adult children, and that one lives on the other side of the country. After talking about some of the central topics relating to medical ethics, we'll come back to this case. To focus our discussion, let's set some goals. By the end of this podcast, you should be able to, one, understand the concept of informed consent, including the four specific pieces of information that must be conveyed to the patient. Two, Understand the concept of medical decision-making capacity, including the four criteria, known as the four C's, which must be met to ensure the patient has capacity. And three, for a patient determined to lack capacity, be familiar with the hierarchy of surrogate decision-makers. With these goals in mind, let's begin. In some countries and cultures outside of the United States, Medical decisions are often made entirely by the clinician, and it is expected that the patient will accept the plan in its entirety and without question. But here in America, the patient learns about their options and is empowered to select choices for themselves. If ethical medical practice in America had to be reduced to a single word, it would be autonomy. Simply put, once patients have been informed about their choices, they have the right to make decisions for themselves in their own best interest and consistent with their goals, values, and beliefs. 
and the responsibility for the patient to be provided decision-making information rests completely on the clinician himself or herself. Patients are always welcome and encouraged to bring their own knowledge or experiences into the conversation, but are under no obligation to do so. The mechanism for this patient-centered education process is known as informed consent. Informed consent is sometimes thought of as the simple task of having a patient sign a few papers before a major medical procedure, for example, an appendectomy. In fact, consent is not a signature on a form, and while the signature is important, it is only a tiny part of the documentation needed to show that an important conversation has occurred. Also, informed consent is not just used for major and potentially high-risk surgeries, but for all procedures, many types of diagnostic tests, such as CAT scans or HIV testing, and prior to many non-surgical treatments, such as chemotherapy or even patient transportation between facilities. Informed consent also needs to be used if a patient decides against a treatment or for decisions initiated entirely by the patient, such as to leave the hospital against medical advice. The process of informed consent occurs in almost every patient encounter. The actual process is relatively straightforward. The first portion consists of the clinician communicating to the patient four important pieces of information. First, what is the nature of the procedure, test, or treatment? In plain English, what is it? How is it performed and how does it work? What will the patient experience during the procedure? Next, the clinician describes risk to the patient. Every procedure, test, or treatment plan is different and presents its own challenges, and so the complications always need to be tailored to each specific scenario. Next, the clinician should describe the benefits. Rarely do our interventions result in a complete cure or resolution of the patient's problem, and this should be conveyed honestly to the patient. Sometimes the patient's benefit is as little as a slight improvement in their symptoms or some modest degree of palliation of discomfort. Finally, what are the alternatives to what is being offered? Are there even any? Sometimes there are simply not any, which is the reality and can be stated as such. So, to review, the four required elements of informed consent are a description of the procedure, test, or treatment, its risks, its benefits, and any alternatives to what is being offered. Following this discussion, Documentation of these four elements, along with the nature of the conversation with the patient, is critical. Finally, a description of the patient's own thought process and their ultimate decision should be documented. All of this should be entered into the medical record while the details of the conversation are still fresh. At the very end, documents are usually signed and the specifics of these differ among institutions. Even after being offered the information necessary for the patient to provide informed consent, some patients still struggle to make an appropriate decision for themselves. Obviously, there needs to be and are exceptions and qualifications to informed consent. Of these, the most important is the idea of capacity. Simply, does the patient have the cognitive ability to make their own decisions? If the patient obviously possesses decision-making capacity, then they should proceed with informed consent. If the patient does not have capacity, or if the patient's capacity is uncertain or ambiguous, 
then the clinician is obligated to identify a surrogate decision maker to advocate for and make decisions on the patient's behalf. In order to identify an appropriate surrogate decision maker, there is a clearly outlined roadmap which prioritizes a hierarchy of individuals who would be the most appropriate for this role. We will discuss these surrogate decision makers later on in the podcast. A lack of capacity is often encountered in real-life scenarios, such as a patient who may have a cognitive disorder, such as advanced dementia, a patient who is unable to communicate due to being on a ventilator or under general anesthesia, or an intoxicated patient who is currently impaired by alcohol or other drugs. In common situations such as these, a clinician must make a determination if the patient has capacity. It is important to consider that simply having one of these conditions does not necessarily preclude a patient from possessing capacity. Having capacity is not simply based on a patient's clinical situation and therefore is not decided at the whim of the clinician. Instead, it is a process consisting of four questions, known as the four C's. The four C's are context, choices, consequences, and consistency. For context, the question is, does the patient understand the situation they are facing? After the clinician describes their scenario, can the patient repeat back this information to the clinician? Obviously, this depends on the patient's ability to communicate effectively, whether by speaking, by writing, or by other means. The next C of capacity is choices. Does the patient understand their options as related to their medical condition? The next is consequences. Does the patient understand the ramifications of choosing the various options? The final element is consistency. Does the patient fluctuate in their understanding of their choices or in their ultimate decision? This final element, consistency, is often overlooked by clinicians due to time constraints. A surgeon's contact with a patient might be limited to a single brief conversation to obtain informed consent for a surgery. However, the patient's understanding of their final decision may actually fluctuate over time. If this is the case, and if the patient can't provide an explanation for their lack of consistency, then this is a red flag that the patient may lack medical decision-making capacity. One last point, decision-making capacity may be present in one domain of a patient's life, but not another. For example, a patient may not be able to weigh the risks and benefits of undergoing a CAT scan, but they are very able to decide who they would like to be discharged home with. In these instances, the patient's decision-making capacity can be qualified to state that it is limited to blank. Despite sometimes having years of experience, many clinicians are not aware that they or any other practitioner caring for the patient is capable to evaluate and judge their patient's medical decision-making capacity. There is no special training or certification required to determine capacity. Just like obtaining competency with a procedure requires teaching, practice, and time, a lack of experience with capacity determination might make a particular clinician uneasy determining capacity at first. This is a normal and appropriate response. If this is the case, then the clinician has several options. First, they can rely on the expertise of their more experienced colleagues in their field. 
Next, they can consult a psychiatrist or psychologist. Both types of clinicians are frequently called upon to perform the task of determining capacity, and often for situations that involve legal issues, such as assigning a court-appointed guardian. Capacity issues often arise in the care of older patients, so most geriatricians can help assess mental capacity. Finally, ethics consultants can be called upon at institutions where they are available. When it has been determined that a patient lacks decision-making capacity, then a surrogate decision-maker needs to be identified. When the patient can't make decisions due to a lack of capacity, the decision-maker does not automatically default to the clinician. Instead, there is a very clear-cut hierarchy of who the decision-maker defaults to in place of the patient. First would be a designated healthcare power of attorney. In emergency situations, sometimes the only option is to rely on a family member's word that they are the actual power of attorney. When this happens, the relative's name and relationship should be documented, and the patient's family should produce the official power of attorney legal document as soon as possible. Once produced by the family, a copy of this document should be added to the patient's permanent medical record for future reference. When there is no existing power of attorney, the next person to decide would be a court-appointed guardian. Sometimes the guardianship process has been initiated but has not yet been completed. In these instances, another temporary decision-maker would need to be identified. If there is no health care power of attorney or legal guardian, then there is a clear hierarchy of family members. First would be the patient's spouse. A patient's partner or long-term companion may identify themselves as the patient's quote-unquote fiancé, but this does not have legal standing when there are other family members available. Next would be an adult child of the patient. If there is more than one adult child, then a consensus should be reached among all of the children who are reasonably available and interested in helping to decide. Next would be the patient's parents or parent, followed by a majority of the patient's siblings, followed by any grandparent, and then finally, any grandchildren. If no relatives at all are available or interested, then an adult friend would be the patient's last resort. If none of these options are available, then a clinician should consider pursuing guardianship. The hierarchy of surrogate decision makers is determined by law at the state level and may vary slightly from state to state. Be sure to familiarize yourself with the rules for the state where you practice. The ranking that has been described in this podcast relate to the laws of North Carolina. While the clinician is pursuing guardianship, he or she should continue to provide ongoing care using their best judgment and consistent with what is known about the patient's wishes. Social workers are often invaluable at tracking down various family members and clarifying their relationships to the patient and to each other. Now, let's return to our patient in the ICU. The first issue is one of informed consent. The surgeons want to perform a medical procedure, the laparotomy, which has the potential to be both life-saving but also life-threatening at the same time. And the ICU staff was wise to call into question the patient's ability to consent to the procedure. The patient 
or someone speaking on the patient's behalf needs to be able to learn about the procedure and balance its risks and benefits. A determination must be made about the patient's decision-making capacity. Immediately, there are some red flags here. The patient has pre-existing dementia, and he's also receiving sedation. Both things could impair his attention, cognition, judgment, and his ability to communicate. After talking about the procedure, the patient states that the surgery is to, quote, open his belly and maybe to cut out the bad intestines, unquote. But it then becomes very clear that he does not understand that the procedure is life-threatening. In addition, the patient is asked about the surgery on two separate occasions, the first time he wants the surgery and the second time he doesn't. Based on not being able to describe the risks of the surgery, as well as the lack of consistency with his decision-making, it is determined without doubt that the patient lacks capacity. Since there is no known healthcare power of attorney, nor any court-appointed guardian, then the next of kin should decide. In this case, the patient's children. And despite the patient's mother still living, the adult children are given priority to decide. The surgery team talks to all three of the children as a group, including the out-of-state sibling by telephone, and they describe in detail the intended benefits, possible risks, and alternatives to the surgery. In this case, all three of the children are in agreement that at this stage in the patient's life, and given his dementia, the patient would not want any complicated, painful, or risky procedures, including this laparotomy. The surgeons are very respectful of this decision and thank the patient's children for thoughtfully advocating on their father's behalf, especially under very stressful circumstances. The surgeons clearly document their informed consent discussion in the medical record. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast, an introduction to medical ethics for clinicians, and found it useful. You may be interested in learning more about clinical medical ethics. If so, start by seeking out the medical ethics consult team at your institution. In addition, there are a number of useful resources available online. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions stated during this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the Durham VA Medical Center.